Thanks for being here today. Um, this is a talk that's centered uh, primarily on CubeLite uh, by Ai Weiwei, which is a work we've actually acquired for the collection and which will be hopefully forever in our collection here at the Hirshhorn and uh, will get put up again uh, at, at some point. But I thought I might just start by talking a little bit about the show uh, and how the exhibition actually came about and the sort of context for the exhibition because I think uh, it, it actually puts sheds some light, no pun intended, on the uh, Cubelite piece. Um, the, a lot has happened with Ai Weiwei <laughs> over the last couple of years, as some of you may know in the audience. And um, Ai Weiwei uh, is a Chinese artist. He's a dissident. Uh, he has fought for human rights, fought for freedom of speech. Um, we started this exhibition that's downstairs, and it's actually all over this museum. It's here in the room we're standing in now. Uh, there's a piece around the corner in the escalator uh, that you came up called 258 Fake. Uh, that has 7,000 photographs which appear on it. Please do go through uh, that part of the exhibition. It gives an overview of Ai Weiwei, well, pretty much from about 1983, more or less, uh, to the present. Uh, the exhibition also is out on the plaza with the zodiac heads that surround the fountain, which is a major work of his that was traveling separately that we managed to get here at the same time uh, as the retrospective. And then also in the lobby downstairs is a beautiful piece called Forever, which is made up of bicycles. And that piece is very much about transportation in China and uh, the fact that the company that makes the bicycles, one of the major companies there is called Forever. Uh, and so it has ramifications. It has a lot of ramifications for the fact that people aren't using bicycles as much as they used to uh, in, in China, uh, uh, as well as the fact of the history of the use of the bicycle there. Um, the exhibition came about uh, because the Mori Art Museum in early 2009, did an exhibition, a retrospective of, of his work. They were unable to travel uh, the exhibition because uh, China had a restriction on how long uh, work could be out of the country at, the, at one go. So it was impossible to have a major show, have it up for three, four, five months, and then to also travel the show afterwards and get the stuff back to China uh, within that period. So they were unable to travel the show. Um, so uh, we had worked with the Mori Art Museum in the past. We did a Hiroshi Sugimoto retrospective, which was a collaboration between the Hirshhorn and the Mori. So the Mori approached us about the idea of sending the works on back to China, but then once a, uh, you know, uh, we could get our act together, creating an American tour for the show that they had done at the Mori uh, in Tokyo. And uh, we were very pleased they approached us about this. And so we began a kind of collaboration to resurrect that exhibition, uh, uh, redo it, uh, add to it, and open it here in Washington, D.C., and I think at that point in time, we were seeing Ai Weiwei, this is now too late 2009, we were seeing Ai Weiwei as, in my view anyway, and I think the view of the other curators, as being 
probably the most important Chinese artist to have emerged in recent years out of China. Now, he wasn't all that well known, though, uh, at the time. Uh, he had had very few exhibitions, uh, but he was becoming, in our view, uh, one of the great artists to, to, to uh, be emerging. And so we wanted to take a chance on this artist that maybe a lot of people hadn't heard of <laughs> at the time and uh, show this work that we thought was, was quite astounding. Now, he already, of course, had run somewhat afoul with the government at the time and had said a lot in his blogs about freedom of speech. Around the time we began working on the show, um, is that me? Uh, around the time he began working on the exhibition, he was also doing work, what he called a citizen's investigation of the Sichuan earthquake that happened in 2008 in China. Uh, at the very beginning of the exhibition downstairs, uh, you'll see a very large wall that has about 5,000 names of Chinese children on the wall in Chinese. And you'll see their birth dates and their death dates. They were all killed in the 2008 Sichuan earthquake. Ai Weiwei was furious because the Chinese government seemed to be covering up what happened in that quake. Government buildings remained standing. All the schools collapsed, and they'd been built by a contractor who had clearly not built them properly. And they collapsed, and they killed a lot of people, including these school children. And so because he couldn't get the information out of the government, he decided to do a citizen's investigation himself. And he uh, did a piece and started a piece uh, to collect all the names of all the children. Um, and first he did a piece called A Snake Ceiling Downstairs, which is made out of backpacks like the children used. Uh, why is it a snake? I've never asked Ai Weiwei that, but I'm assuming that snakes in some ghostly way come back together and can strike back uh, at the cause of, of, uh, or the reason that they're not there. Um, and then he began the investigation to collect every single name, every single one of, of the school children who had died. And the government wasn't too happy about this. And uh, the names on the wall downstairs are that piece. Uh, and about this time in 2009, they shut his blog down. He originally had not wanted to, he was not interested in digital technology and was not really interested in doing a... Um, a blog, but he'd been approached by a Chinese company, and they said, "We think you'd be great, you know, writing a blog." And uh, this was uh, three or four years before, and he didn't really want to do it, but he tried it, and he liked it. He liked actually writing and being able to stick photographs on. And if you notice in the show downstairs, you see a lot of photographs from New York in between '83 and '91. He loved going around snapping photographs, and uh, I think this kind of street photography which it almost refers back to, the kind of photography that, say, um, Robert Frank or Gary Winogrand might have done in the 1950s and 60s, um, really became his kind of uh, cup of tea, so to speak, uh, at, at the time. And eventually, that kind of died out, and he started moving other directions that you'll see in the show downstairs, but it all kind of came rushing back in when he started doing this blog. And he was able to become this kind of street photographer again, this document, documentarian, this uh, reportage that he would do. And it, 
investigate what China was all about, uh, whether it was a critique or whether it was like a celebration of, of things Chinese in his country and other places in the world. So he began this, this blog, and um, uh, that sort of grew in, until thousands of people were following Ai Weiwei. So um, about the time that we chose to do this exhibition, uh, his blog was shut down. And uh, we had no idea what we were getting into in a funny way with this show. We knew his background a little bit, but we didn't know what was coming. And, of course, what was coming was the fact that um, he had just, by the way, in 2008, been asked by the government to co-design with Herzog and de Muron the uh, bird's nest uh, uh, stadium for the 2008 Olympic Games by the government was, was asked to do this, and he did, and they did a beautiful job on this building. It's a fantastic building. I think in 2009, he actually asked his name to be pulled off of it because he didn't like the way that it seemed to be being used for propaganda uh, purposes. But the very first piece in the show is kind of a walkthrough, you know, in a sense, of that building, and it surrounds you as you come in the exhibition. Uh, but we didn't know what was lying ahead. And in 2010, we'd already begun to work with Ai Weiwei. He had seen the spaces here. Uh, he had actually... Um he had actually laid the show out, and we had the show pretty much laid out uh, completely. And then suddenly he was arrested, and he disappeared for 81 days, and no one knew where he was. We had no idea if he was still alive, even, or where he was. We assumed he would reappear at some point, but one just didn't know. Um, he did reappear in 81 days, finally, and um, then he was under house arrest for a year uh, after that. Uh, he was not allowed, and I think theoretically still isn't, uh, to use digital technology to uh, recreate a blog or to even uh, email. And uh, so this made uh, contact uh, with him somewhat difficult for us in uh, continuing uh, with the show, although we were able to work directly with his studio and his studio to work with him. So it became this kind of, uh, you know, passing along uh, information and then having the information be passed along and come back. So we were able uh, uh, to continue. So the exhibition took on a... I think a whole, I wouldn't say a new context, but I would say a, a, a much bigger context than the one we originally imagined. We wanted the show here in Washington, D.C., because we felt that Ai Weiwei, as an artist who spoke out about social and political issues, uh, that we could create a platform here in Washington for him that gave him a context that was sort of unlike any other he could have anywhere else. And so it was important for us right from the start to have the show here. But considering everything that happened afterwards, it's become even more important, I think, that the show is here in Washington, and we're really proud that it's actually here. And I think the best way for Ai Weiwei to speak, in a way, is through his art. And it's all here and, and quite substantial. There's also a piece over at the Sackler, by the way, uh, in their pavilion. Um, but today, I'm going to talk a little bit about CubeLight. That sort of sets a context for what CubeLight, in a way, is all about. Um, what is this thing uh, behind me here? You know, it's, it's a little bizarre. It's a giant cube, uh, first of all. And one of the things that Ai Weiwei is very interested in, and has been in, in his work for a long time, is art history. He's very interested in what other artists have done and what they've created. But he's also interested, as you'll see in his furniture work downstairs, in taking something 
and shifting the meaning, completely changing that original meaning into something else, or having two meanings come together that create a different meaning. And when you do that, you're taking something, juxtaposing it with something else, and maybe even something else, and then the sum becomes greater than the parts, uh, in a way. In this particular piece, he's referring back to artists like Don Judd. We have one in our collection, an early uh, uh, box sculpture. Larry Bell, who did cubes. We have a Hans Hacke in our collection, which is a cube also. In the late 60s and the 70s, a lot of artists were working with very fundamental geometric shapes. And these are of great interest to Ai Weiwei. And that was a different context. That was all about sort of the industrial materials, basic shapes, fabricated often not by the artist, but by somebody else. Uh, and that was kind of pushing art in a direction uh, at the time. So in a way, he's paying homage to that kind of art, which moved him greatly. And in another way, he's done something else here. He's applied over the surface of this Don Judd-like cube a set of thousands of crystals, of glass crystals, uh, which are the kind that are used in kind of relatively cheaply made um, uh, chandeliers in China. Um, now, something else comes into play at that point, and that is a series of chandelier pieces that he's made since 2002. And those chandeliers have all had shapes to them that mean something other than what a chandelier means. He became interested in the chandelier uh, for a variety of reasons, one that's used all over China. No one could afford them at one point in China, but they're often used to represent wealth, to represent the bourgeoisie in a funny sort of way, strangely in China, but it's used to symbolize something. He was very much a fan of Sergei Eisenstein's work, the filmmaker from the 20s, 30s, early 40s, um, who had done uh, films that were supportive of the Soviet regime, but at the same time seemed to kind of undermine it by doing radical work in aesthetics uh, in cinema that were so completely unconventional that he would get himself into trouble uh, with the powers that were often supporting the very movies he was doing, such as Potemkin from 1925. or. Uh, strike from 1922, um, or a film from 1928 called October, which is all about the revolution, but which was about, uh, has a scene in it in which uh, there's a bombing of the Winter Palace uh, in which the aristocracy is coming under fire and there's a large chandelier which begins to shake in that sequence. Now, one of the things that Eisenstein is all about in his films, and I think this is important and no one's really pointing this out, one of the things that Eisenstein is all about is the concept of montage. It's the idea of one image juxtaposed against another, creating a dialectic between the two that then result in something else. And I think that's what's happening here. It's not only that he's interested in the chandelier that was in Eisenstein's film that represents the falling of uh, uh, aristocracy, 
of, of a power that's in control. But it's also about the juxtaposition of minimalist art with um, chandeliers made in China and about the culture of China itself and the culture of chandeliers. And you take that and put a skin on to a Don Judd that is all about something else that has ramifications of, of a chandelier, ramifications of China uh, itself, and you begin to get a montage of two things juxtaposed together that don't belong together to begin with, but when they're clashing with one another, actually uh, create something else. And, and what they create is a kind of subversion of the original idea of the minimalist cube as a sort of formal gesture in contemporary art carried on from the Russian constructivists early on with society itself, with culture itself, with the Chinese culture. And then you get this idea that it's a chandelier, but it's not a chandelier. You know, it's not a cube. It's not a minimalist cube. It's too big. You know, it's gigantic, it's blown up, it's of gargantuan proportions. It no longer functions like a minimalist cube, and it no longer functions like a chandelier either. It's too big for a chandelier. Yet it also, kind of like a chandelier, almost sort of floats in the air like a chandelier. It's floating just like three inches off the ground, almost kind of magically uh, uh, in a way. And... Um, so you've got these positions where it's almost a minimalist sculpture, but not quite, almost a chandelier, but not quite, and yet too big, too big, it's gotta be about something else. And what it's about is a kind of subversion of the original uses of the things, just like when you take a table downstairs and he chops it in half and then creates a sculpture out of it. It can no longer function as a table. It can no longer function as stools, the piece grapes downstairs, which are a lot of old stools that he's put together. It can no longer function as a stool. It becomes something else. And in this particular case, um, it's neither a chandelier nor is it a, a minimalist cube, but it begins to function as something else, a kind of commentary uh, on society and in, uh, interrogation, so to speak, of Chinese culture and American culture uh, from the 1960s, and perhaps even harking back to the culture um, of the Soviet Revolution uh, in, in the teens and, and the 20s. So Cube Light is a complex work, in my view, and to me it's one of the essential works that Ai Weiwei has created. He's done a series of these chandeliers, not too many though, I think about seven. And I'll just tell you about a couple of the other chandeliers that he's done. Um, one of them, absolutely stunning piece, which he did uh, based upon Vladimir Totling, another Russian constructivist, who created something called the Monument to the Third International, which was this, going to be this giant monument that was going to be built in the Soviet Union uh, as a sort of homage to modern society to technology. Uh, of course, it never got built, but it's been repeated over and over again in art history in various ways. Uh, he actually made a chandelier out of it and then floated it in front of the Tate Liverpool uh, on water so that it became like a vessel uh, moving through time, uh, at the same time a chandelier and at the same time uh, the uh, monument to the Third International. 
He also has done a giant chandelier, which was his first one in 2002, um, which was way too big to be a real chandelier and was actually held up by um, heavy scaffolding all the way uh, around it so that again it became this thing that was too heavy, too big, too powerful to really exist as what it looked like, uh, which, was, which was a chandelier. Uh, he did another one which was red, which looked like it had fallen from the ceiling and smashed on the ground and has a rather kind of sexual connotations to it, but at the same time also looks like it's been destroyed. And one of the things, as you know about Ai Weiwei's work, he's very interested in destruction or the look of destruction. But out of destruction, out, out of the destruction, whether it's a chandelier that looks like it's fallen to the ground or whether it's destroying Don Judd's minimalist type cube, out of destruction comes creation, comes something new. And if you take a Han Dynasty urn and you smash it to the ground, it can be called just an act of vandalism, but it can also be an act which creates self-awareness of who we are and what we are and forces you to think in a completely new way. It shocks you into having to think in a new way. And I think that's something Ai Weiwei wants for China. I think it's what he wants for the world. And I think it would be, you know, in kind of uh, sort of summarizing here, I think in a way it's always a mistake to think of Ai Weiwei's work as just a critique about China. Yes, it's definitely the look of this piece comes out of a certain look of, of Chinese chandeliers. But it's a mistake to think about it as a critique of just China, any of his works, uh, because they're more than that. When you reach the end of the show downstairs, after maybe thinking that, you know, this is just a critique of the Chinese government, you have to think again in that last room, because there's two photographs hanging up in that last room that actually come from a series of about 14 photographs, I think, uh, in which he's doing what he calls a perspective study, a study in perspective, which, um, but instead of using his thumb, he uses his middle finger uh, to study the perspective, not only on uh, uh, Tiananmen Square, uh, but also on the White House, and also in the rest of the series, things like the Eiffel Tower. So I think there's a questioning in Ai Weiwei of all power, power that rests with people, and are they using it correctly? He has a quote downstairs which is about uh, no one is standing straight. No one's really, you know, standing up and, and for, for human values. And his whole piece downstairs, the rebar piece, yes, it's about, it's about the Sichuan earthquake. It's made up of the rebar that actually fell uh, in the Sichuan earthquake, and it's been re-straightened by him. But it's not just about the Sichuan earthquake. It's about everybody becoming straight and standing straight and, and not being spineless. So anyway, that's my little brief uh, summation of CubeLite, but I'd be happy to answer any questions about CubeLite or about Ai Weiwei. Just a question, uh, rebar, I'm not sure the terms, are those things very heavy and built? Yes, that, that is correct. My wife and I were wondering yesterday, how one gets a piece like that from its original point of construction to where it is? Well, yeah, he actually went to the site of the earthquake, and he took a crew with him, and they actually managed to get a hold of the original rebar that fell in those buildings. And they took it back to a studio in Beijing, and then they he I believe they heated it, and they re-straightened it back uh, uh, so that it would be straight again to, to create that piece. That piece was an extremely difficult piece. That was one, I mentioned that we already had the show laid out before he was arrested, but when he got out of his detention, um, uh, 
uh, he wanted to make uh, some new work. So the crabs, uh, the river crabs, uh, which also have an interesting meaning, um, and the, the, the straight piece, the rebar piece, uh, were created for, specifically for this exhibition. And um, uh, we had to be careful with it because it's very heavy. And there's 38 tons of rebar in, in that piece uh, uh, in that room. No, that's right. No, no, it was it was constructed in in China. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know the full technique, but I will tell you that in about a week, <laughs> we're going to put up a film which is going to show exactly how he did it because people have been asking a lot of questions about how it's been done, and he would like to put a film up that he has just now made, which will be just outside the show in the ambulatory, probably where Brancusi's Sleeping Muse is, the head right now, and we'll put it up there, and it will be a film that will show exactly how he, he straightened this out. So uh, if, you, if you can come back, if you live in the area, uh, you'll get the full story. We are. We're actually going to put it on the web. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. The, pretty much the same amount. Mm-hmm. Cube is red. Interesting. And um, because they were supposed to be floating, mm -hmm. um, uh, godlike, um, uh, above the normal yes. you know, uh, culture. Yes. Well, he, he has not said that to me, but I think that's an incredibly uh, perceptive, uh, you know, a great percep uh, perceptive statement of yours. Uh, absolutely, I'll bet you he was, uh, you know, clearly uh, thinking in terms of that when, when he did that. So uh, thank you for pointing that out. That's, that's extremely interesting and quite possible, actually. Yes. Yes. Could you comment on what he was trying to accomplish there? Yeah. The, the blurb seemed really, rather interesting, but it didn't really explain what his intent was. Well, I think he's. Uh, I think there's a kind of ambivalence about that, uh, you know, in terms of Ai Weiwei and in terms of many, many Chinese. Uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, it shows how the Chinese have been able to remake their country at an incredibly rapid rate. Uh, which is impressive. On the other hand, it also demonstrates how the Chinese government bought all this land and they were able to control it so that the, as I understand it, and I hope I have this right, the citizens didn't have much control over what was going to happen in those sort of peripheral uh, areas. And the government would come in and build uh, uh, buildings in the area so that the landscape would change at a, ra a radical, ra very rapid, radical fashion. And I think he was very interested, almost like uh, Ajé was in Paris in the 1800s, of quickly trying to document, um, uh, you know, the look of Paris before it got changed. Uh, and the new Paris, you know, half of Paris was knocked down and all the boulevards were created. And so 
I think a little bit like Ajay or some of the other photographers at the time who tried to document um, uh, Paris, I think he was very interested in just simply documenting what was happening with the country. Not so much the old to the new, but what was happening, that things were changing in a rapid fashion in these sort of strange peripheral areas, maybe not right in the city, not completely out in the country, but sort of on the periphery uh, of the cities, which is something that some other artists have been very interested in, too, is how uh, these sort of um, no-man land, uh, lands uh, are, have become sort of the areas of where the world is changing the fastest. Jeff Wall's been another who's documented that in, in his photography. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, the, the Maya Lin exhibition. Yes. No, I don't think there's been too many comparisons of, uh, that I know of anyway between uh, Maya Lin, who's an American, and, and Ai Weiwei, who's Chinese, but of course who, who has lived in America uh, uh, a long time. I think that a lot of you know, Ai Weiwei's thinking comes out of a slightly more um, uh, radical notion of what art can be. Um, and uh, he sort of came over here initially in the... Uh, early 1980s with a very conservative view of what art what, of what art was which he admits and it was only through living in New York City uh, you know for eight years or so that he uh, really began to understand uh, uh, and saw what art could be and began to think of people like Marcel Duchamp as the kind of artist that he wanted to become, in a way a much more conceptual uh, kind of art, which is ironic, I know, to say conceptual when I'm standing by a 14-foot cube, you know, but, you know, all conceptual art to some degree has a physicality to it, or most of it does, and uh, it's, it's because I think his art is so much about ideas, uh, and, and you have to bring, and, and he, there is no one answer to what his pieces are about. It's not a, a, a simple uh, thing. They can be about anything you want it to be about, really, uh, as art, but uh, he does have a tendency to mix a number of things together in most of his, uh, uh, most of his work. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes, to a degree it is because it's about the ideas behind it. I think art, uh, art can be approached from a multiplicity of, of, of perspectives and at, and at different levels. And if you just walk into this room and all you see is this beautiful, you know, light, lit up cube that becomes almost like a light and space work uh, from a California artist like, you know, uh, uh, that we might have seen in the, in the 70s, um, it's beautiful just, just as that. And, you know, I find it actually a, a very stunningly beautiful piece. Uh, but and you can accept it on just that level. Uh, 
But if you kind of know what he's playing with also, there's a greater understanding, just like there is for any art, you know. I mean, if you go back and study art history and you know, you know, why certain artists are trying to go beyond the artist before them, it, it, it starts to, you know, you gain a greater appreciation of, of, of what it's about. So you can approach it from different platforms. Yes? I'm intrigued with your beginning comment that you wanted to go inside. Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. You know, uh, I do. I, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this piece is it does have an inside. And it, it's got a multiple series of panels all over. There's a lot of panels in this piece. And, uh, and yet it's also kind of opaque. It's hard to see them in there. You kind of have to look through it. It's hard to see through. And, and to be honest, I, you know, without trying to get too complicated, I think that the sort of uh, opaqueness of it, the fact that you, it's, that you can sort of see into it, but you can't quite quite see into it has something to do with uh, his critiques of, of, of governments as well. I think you could kind of see what they're doing, but they don't let you see everything they're doing. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to simplify the piece too much or interpret it too much, but, you know, I kind of feel that maybe there's some idea there as well about, about the transparency of, of situations with it. Uh, the golden tone, yeah. I mean, it's it, it it's a beautiful golden color. It's it's a color that is used, I believe, in China quite a bit. But it's also this, uh, you know, incredibly beautiful color. And as as far as I know, he did not use this color in any of the under other chandelier pieces, which have been mostly white and and red, uh, uh, actually. So, yes. 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 Uh, here's a guy who's back in New York, not having been remarkably successful as an artist. Exactly. And he's not particularly successful in China, by the way. Yeah. Okay, and my question, and maybe you know, but how does a guy like that, when he gets back, I think he's probably attracted to younger artists because of sort of Western traditions or Western art. I think that's true. You know, they haven't had access to it like he has, but how does he take off? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think he was actually having a lot of smaller shows, and uh, actually, I think he was actually, you know, struggling to some degree in China. He uh, began to take off, I would say around 2003 uh, or so, sort of just after the chandeliers uh, started, he began to appear internationally. And so I think it was really his, uh, more or less his international appearances at various, you know, documentas, Venice Biennales, uh, the Tate Liverpool, uh, which began to give him the reputation and probably why he has a greater international reputation than he may have possibly within China itself, although that's kind of changed the last few years with, you know, um, uh, that's kind of changed the last few years because he's become so well-known now. It's pretty hard, and it's hard for people to hide people now, you know, so on the Internet, you know, they can pick up things and, you know, they try to control it. I wanted to mention to you uh, all, this is interesting, we're trying to do something different with this show. Uh, with most shows, you have your sort of uh, expensive catalog uh, that you can buy, uh, which you can for this show too. Uh, but I wanted to mention this because uh, we're also selling this. This is the same book with maybe a little bit of the back matter not in it. But it's, the same, it's essentially the same book as the trade edition of the catalog, uh, but it's $5. 
and it's sort of the, a little bit more than a latte. And, and, uh, but it's got all the information about this exhibition, plus we added everything that we've added to the show uh, into this. And um, uh, it's uh, kind of a new sort of platform where we're trying to get information out about exhibitions. I just mentioned it to you because, you know, people... I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that I could go into the bookstore and find a catalog for $5, So just, just so you're aware of it. Uh, they're selling like crazy, so I'm not – but it's a way for information, yeah. And it's got information on uh, – write-ups on a lot of the pieces in the exhibition, so. Uh, it's got – no, it doesn't have the quotes, although some of them were pulled from the interview. Uh, that's in the middle of, 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 of it. So there's a few, there's a few that came, came out of that, I believe. Yes. No, no. There's it's it's panels like this, and they're just going various ways uh, inside. And then it's just got uh, these lights uh, that aren't exactly chandelier lights, but from a distance they look like it they're lit up. So anyway, thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it. And, and if you haven't seen the rest of the show yet, I hope you have the opportunity to to go see it. And, no, and there's also a piece over at the Sackler. So. Please go see that. Thank you.